Welcome back to Dateline New Haven and WNHHFM New Haven's home for community radio. I'm Paul Bass inviting you to look behind the headlines and the stories that make New Haven tick. Well, you can place a bet that any headline you want to really understand what it's all about, the woman who's in our studio today would be the first person you'd ask to help explain. Her name is Karen Bois Walton. She's the chair of New Haven's Housing Authority. She's had a long run and a good run there. She's also the chair of the State Board of Ed, where some of the most important issues about post-pandemic learning are taking place and just active on the civic front, government front, since last century, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I met you in the 90s, right? We did, we did. At lunch at, what was that place called? In, on the Taft Hotel. What was it then? When it's you been were a work- few things. Yeah. I, can't I know, remember, it's a long, but, long time yeah, ago. And Karen Boys, welcome, welcome to uh, Dateline New Haven. Thank you for coming in. So today, um, Tent City, uh, an encampment of homeless people on the boulevard was removed. You know, there's specific questions about how to do it, but also larger questions about why it's there and how do we deal with people who don't want to go to shelters and warming centers. What was your take on the whole thing? You know, it's, um, Paul, first, just great to be with you as always. Um, It's been really uh, difficult to look at what's happening um, around homelessness and the number of folks that that are unhoused after Connecticut has done um, it's really led the nation in a lot of ways in reducing the numbers around homelessness. And, and this year, for the first time, we saw the numbers ticking back up. So what's heartbreaking about uh, seeing what happened with Ten City is um, how it's also an indicator of what I fear is more to come as people are really living with housing um, insecurity and really tenuous situations. And and we see growing numbers of, of homeless families. Um, there is little that is um that you can say about um of an eviction of any kind that um takes away from how traumatic it is uh it's one of the reasons that elm city communities we work really hard to keep people housed we recognize our role as part of the safety net if you can't make it with us that that you know there aren't many options um and it's what's really heartbreaking about seeing folks who are unhoused and then um evicted from the place that they have um that they have created actually community um, so it was it was hard to watch. It's hard hard to know about, um, and it's what powers us forward to work on this issue of what I call a crisis in our community around housing affordability. And we're going to talk about that crisis um, for a moment, just to focus on more intense cities. Some of the folks there did not want to go to Columbus House. Mm-hmm. They didn't want to go to a shelter. They had various reasons. Um, what do we do for folks like that, especially if they're struggling a lot of them with mental illness and drug addiction? What's the, what's the answer there? So I think we have to listen to, to folks and, and when understand what is the challenge and, and, um, and what has their experience been in congregate settings um, in the past. Um, I think we learned a lot, um, a lot of lessons during the pandemic. We saw a number of folks who might have been shelter resistant that um, actually were, were housed in the long term um, uh, use of, of hotel spaces. Yeah, that for, was interesting. For for, we were told for five minutes that that was going to be the answer. Remember the article in the Times about California? But now that the market's recovered, that's not, that's not going to be the plan, is it? It's troubling when uh, we don't continue to invest in things that we see work. Um, and I think for, you know, it, it, there's a, a, a model, though, of folks who may have been shelter resistant that actually accepted um, a real solution um, and that, that got folks off the street. And I, it, to me, would be a case to really double down um, on trying to explore those kinds of options. Are we still doing the long off suites for those folks? Or did that end? So uh, don't quote me because I'm not the, the expert on that. I believe that there's still some families there, though. Mm-hmm. And would you have dismantled the? They said this wasn't safe. People were in these flammable tents. They were cooking in them. There were feces on the ground. There was, was also a soccer field. 
Do you think that's those are hard questions for society, right? Do you let people camp out there on public land? Do we have legal responsibility for them? What do you think? Um, I personally believe that we do have a responsibility um, to ensure in a country um, as wealthy as the United States, in a state as wealthy as Connecticut, to make priority that people actually have places um, to, to, to call home, to, to live, um, and that those places don't need to be a tent um, on, on, a, on a soccer field or adjacent to a soccer field. I think it is in our, ob our obligation. It's our, I think it's our calling, and I think it's what we have to continue to orient ourselves towards in the work that we do, local, state, and federal um, level. And I think, you know, coming through, in, and still being in, but coming through what we've been through over the last three years, seeing how when there's a will to, um, to align our resources to things that we think are uh, for the public good and are rooted in humanity, that, that we actually um, are, are able to align some of those things. I think we can't let off uh, the pressure on continuing to do that um, and, and ensuring that our public dollars are aligned in ways that uh, actually create those options for folks. Karen DuBois, Walton, Executive Director of the Housing Authority, Head of the State Board of Education. Well, you've been doing some of that pressure, pressure applying. You've been thinking both state, local, and federal levels. You're part of a coalition for fair housing that's been going not just to New Haven, but to Woodbridge and to state hearings, trying to change the rules in the state that make it hard to put affordable housing in the suburbs. Because everyone's pretty much agreeing with you that there's an affordable housing crisis. They have different views on what to do about it. But everyone says, you know, you said homelessness going up and the rent's going up. So what are you tr hoping to see happen? What are you working toward trying to see happen at this state legislative session to promote more affordable housing? You know, you don't have to have taken but uh, even basic entry uh, economics class to have some basic understanding of laws of supply and demand, right? And so we are in the crisis we're in right now um, because we have underproduced housing and the supply of housing really at all, at all price points um, that, that um, moderate income families um, and certainly families living on lower means um, could have access to. We just haven't produced since probably the 70s. Um, we haven't been producing. And so we need pressure um, from all corners to make sure that we are really revving up housing production um, in this community, in our neighboring communities throughout the state, but in most communities across the country, because you're seeing this as a national issue. And so the pressure we're applying is at, at all of those levels. Um, it's really rooted in the, the work that I've been able to do for over 16 years now at the Housing Authority, wow. redeveloping our own, our own portfolio and um, and bringing into this community really quality affordable housing opportunities, but also feeling like are we are we getting are we making progress in sort of reducing the need out there? Um, and we uh, a couple years ago um, opened up our wait list so that we would no longer sort of cap it and have this artificial um, estimate of what the need is. So our wait list remains permanently open at this at this point, so that we can actually be speaking to what's the need. How out there. big is the wait list? So we're at like thirty thousand families Whoa! on the wait list right wait now. Wait a second, thirty thousand families are waiting for New Haven Public Housing Authority apartments. Thirty thousand families, and it That's makes an sense. Incredible number by the government's own numbers, right? Because if you look at HUD's websites or things they put out, um, the government acknowledges that um, we're only subsidizing right now about one out of every four income eligible families. So the government already says that it knows that for every one we're subsidizing, there are three other families that are income eligible, just as qualified, just as, just as in need, that are going unserved because we haven't funded the programs. So if you think about us serving um, 6,000 families uh, right now, 
it's easy to say that there are 18,000, 20,000 families, right, by HUD's own estimates um, that, are, that are out there. So it actually wasn't surprising for me to see our wait list grow to 20,000, 30,000 um, families. Um, and I've mentioned before, you know, we, we look at that. Those, those are not all folks who are um, born, bred, raised, living in New Haven. It's a lot of folks coming from other communities who just don't have opportunities in those communities. A lot, about a third of our wait list comes from the towns surrounding us and, and mm-hmm. other communities in, in Connecticut. So I say that to say we pretty quickly realized we're not going to solve this problem alone as a housing authority. Um, we got involved in local housing policy, um, the, housing, the uh, affordable housing um, task force, which led to the commission. Um, lots of conversations with city folk around that because we knew we needed to be doing different things in the city. That led to regional conversations, work with the South Central um, Council of, of Governments um, and trying to, trying to move the conversation regionally. That led to our, our statewide advocacy and a number of bills. Uh, I was up till uh, about uh, 2 a.m. this morning tracking the Planning and Development Committee at the state level on some housing bills that are moving through. Um, right I'd, like, I'd like to hear about those. Karen, is it fair to say that 30,000 number on the wait list is relevant to what happened at 10th City today? I get calls every day, um, Paul, without exaggeration, to directly to my office and, and, and others calling you know, our waitlist area with folks in really urgent need. I'm about to be evicted. I've been evicted. Um, you know, wh- where am I, I going to go? Um, all of these things are tied together. The, the, the underproduction, the lengthy wait lists, the, um, the, the too many places that are saying no housing here, um, all is connecting to the number of families we see unstably housed, doubled up, living in difficult conditions, um, living in intense, um, uh, you know, adjacent to soccer fields. It's all, it's all connected. Mm-hmm. So what bills are you monitoring at the planning committee? So if, if the theory I'm espousing is true, right, that we have underproduced um, for far too long. I think we that's pretty be, accepted now, isn't it? Even I people who disagree is. about what to do about it, they say we need more housing. Right. This the, the the state has to grow. Every every politician every year I've I've tracked any kind of level of of election is always talking about Connecticut has to grow. Um, this is an economic growth issue. Connecticut is not going to grow if people can't afford to live here, can't find places to to live. Um, commun- all of our communities um, need to be need to be a part of this. So I I think it is universally accepted. Although I question it a little bit when I hear the pushback um, about. The, the efforts, because it's sort of acknowledging, we got to grow, but not, not that way. Don't do that. Okay, well, how about this? Well, no, no, don't do that, or that's too much. Or, um, you know, you get, you get headlines um, uh, when, a, when a suburban town, you know, brings on a, a small development of four units. It's celebrated, like, what a wonderful thing has happened, four new units. It's just an indication that we're just not accepting the scale of the problem the urgency of the problem and that celebrating four units when I'm talking about a wait list of 30,000 just for just for us 30,000 families let alone what Bridgeport has and Hartford has and you know Waterbury and any of the larger housing authorities we're just not aligned so anyway I think we need to focus on what are the things that are going to create um, investment in communities that have been creating housing so that they'll keep doing it um, we need to be be driving money into the into um, places that have been under resourced for too long into places that are starting to say, hey, let's build. So we're, we're supporting bills around that. We need to be removing the barriers um, that, uh, that are zoning and land use. So we're sorting bill, supporting bills that are going to really incentivize and push communities to get rid of the, the rules on the books that say you can't put multifamily here. Um, and so we need to do that. And in the meantime, people are suffering. 
And so we also have to be protecting renters. Um, and so we've got a bunch of tenant protection bills that we are supporting. So also. which specific bills are you just that would do what? Yeah. On, on, so, uh, so on tenant protection, um, we were sad to see that the rent cap bill has, has not um, moved forward in the way we would have wanted. It's looking at this point like it's moving forward as a study. Um, it initially had been much more aggressive than a study and really putting some protections in. So, so that was disappointing. However, there are still alive um, bills that will um, invest in the homelessness system. So speaking of Tent City, right, there's a bill alive that adds another $50 million into addressing homelessness. We've put our, our support behind that. Um, there are bills pending right now that will limit how much security deposit money can be charged. Um, there are bills that are, are seeking to increase the fines that can be charged against landlords who are letting people live in places that are deplorable. Um, and where the small $250 fine for a large corporate landlord is a slap on the wrist that doesn't really change behavior. So there, there are bills like that. Um, there are anti-discrimination um, bills that will pr give people um, protections against being discriminated in rental around sexual orientation. So fully behind, behind those. Um, we're behind the fair share bill. Fair share seeks to look at the state and the state's need and give some real numbers about how we allocate across every community, how much of the affordable housing need they need to be um, stepping up to the plate around, and then really getting some stronger enforcement so that towns would have an opportunity to put a plan together, say this is how we're gonna get to our number, and if plans fail to do that, then the, the uh, stick to that bill is that some default um, zoning gets, gets imposed that actually opens up places and allows that. We think that's a powerful one. Um, we've got some language out there that we've added to a couple of the to one of the governor's bills um, that seeks to have bonding money um, in, in, as an incentive to towns that that do these kind of zoning changes. Um, we've got some language that says we think we need more than bonding money because I don't know that you incentivize a town if a town doesn't want to build and you say hey we'll give you bonding money to build when you change the zoning. I don't know that that's an incentive. It's it's you know giving you money to do something that you didn't want to do to begin with. But I don't know any of the elected officials in any of the 169 towns that aren't saying we need more money in our general fund. I think we need uh, to really incentivize places that build housing by offering them um, uh, some some money out of into their general fund. So we have something we call the housing growth fund that we've been pitching um, and gotten some good some good uh, testimony in that we hope will will move forward this session. Um, so those those are some uh, transit oriented development is the one I was up till that uh, was late interesting. Last night. That's the one that says we want you to be able to build near train stations, right? Uh, apartments. Why would people we like object to, to that? Because uh, the word who's going to come do. there, and that's kind of weird. Because actually, they're going to be perfectly happy with the people who come there, and they're going to eat at their restaurants. It's. What do you think this is all about? You know about, what? Karen? I think a lot about. It's just um, race. Is it classism? What is it? That's I, making I the suburbs so look, scared I mean, of having... What, what, the roots of zoning are, were uh, controlling land use were discriminatory and racist. And we, we know that here in Connecticut. We know that across the country. When you stop being able to explicitly say, black people, you can't live here, um, zoning became the mechanism to make, make that happen. That's clearly documented by folks who've studied this far more than I and, and, and accepted. So absolutely, there are roots of racism and classism in, in it um, and, um, and, and fear of... of what that change is going to mean. But, you know, I go back to our own little example here in New Haven, Hamden. Did you know you followed well um, when we redeveloped the West Rock community, the horrible fence that well, existed? Well, you, you haven't heard anything complaints about it. And that's my point. Yeah. People had such fears about nice don't take the, the, the uh, fence down, the wall down, um, of the, the sky was going to fall, traffic was going to be outrageous, crime was going to sky. 
why every possible stereotypical thing you could think um, was said. The, the fence has been down for years. We have beautiful community built in uh, with the former Brookside and Rockview and, and the old Ripikoff Cottages. Beautiful community. It's got a suburban kind of feel out, out, out there. Zero complaints of all the things that were feared. Um, and I think that's, that's what, we, what we see over and over again. Um, is that there's a lot of hoopla. There's a lot of uh, not-in-my-backyard-ism, NIMBYism, um, that far outshadows um, any real impact. Even even the school stuff that people will say, oh, this, the, too many kids in our school overshadowing us. These communities, for the most part, have shrinking school enrollment, have capacity for, for more young people. Um, and often what you're building around a train station isn't even um, the housing that attracts family with, with children to be to begin right, with. It's so the commuter. That, like, that's that, the whole point. Yeah. You get that, someone who's going to New York to work. Yeah. Hang together. So yeah, so I think it's a lot of fear. Uh, it's rooted in some stuff that's ugly that we need to um, face and, and move beyond. Um, but we need to we need to really focus everybody on that. This is an economic development issue for our for our state. We are not going to grow as a state until we build housing um, and um, we need to build it in, in all places. Karen, was one, what about Church Street South? So that we used to have 299 apartments there, family apartments that got torn down. There were a lot of problems with the city. You helped the families find new housing in an emergency. That land across from the train station, ultimate transit-oriented development, that's been sitting vacant for years. There's an impasse between the people who own the property, Northland, and the other administration. They're both giving us their side about why the other person's the villain and why they can't get and move forward. What's your take on it? Do you have any role in trying to get a solution there? perfect example of transit-oriented development, right? What, what better place to um, come out of the train station, welcome to New Haven, and, and have an opportunity to, um, to see something beautiful there. So um, we, our, our stake in it is that we are an adjacent property owner. Um, our stake in it is that we are committed to housing, housing good housing policy in this, in this um, city, region, and, and state. And, I, I, and that's a prime project that we need to, to focus on. So right next to Church Street South, you might know, we Robert have a building called for, yeah, 49 Union, which we call Robert T. Wolf. Um, it is a uh, public housing development that um, has uh, seen better days, has suffered from um, the, the challenges of the public housing um, program of just underfunding and to, to meet basic sort of needs. And so we've been keeping it together um, and making investments in it, but with a recognition that this is a building we actually want to redevelop. We want to offer families the same kind of high-quality transformation that we've been able to offer at so many other places. So it's like, and, and um, floodplain issues and, 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 and other things have changed since it was built. So it actually needs to be um, redeveloped in a way that the folks on the first floor aren't going to get flooded every time that that so we you have want a to, rain. You want that <laughs> rebuilt. So you're looking to have that rebuilt as part of the Jersey South project? So we initially wanted to think about that as a whole area that we could redevelop together. Um, if we can't see some movement, though, at Church Street South, um, then I think we're going to have to go it alone because we can't leave our families in limbo. So f- up until this point, absolutely, um, we are continuing to be interested in talking with the, d- the developer around it. We've had some, um, we had some early, I, I, I think this dates, ba- to, dates back to the DiStefano administration um, where we had some, you know, good plans developed um, jointly. Um, we went after some federal grants together. Um, continued work on this Project during the HARP admi- administration. Any so chance, this goes back. But any chance they'll call you in to kind of fix this, given that they can't do it? 
well, we 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 keep we they're in our role. Uh, you, do you say Rolodex anymore? They're on yeah. the on the <laughs> they're on the short list. Though we call check in with them, um, and yeah, let it be known that we are happy to be a development partner on that and and to step in in any way that would be useful. Karen, do is what you know. One thing, just listening to you, I can't believe how much information you keep in your head. Like I just asked you about RFT Wolf here. This whole history there and the whole project. We just talked about the Rest Rock thing. There are probably twenty other projects like that around town at any one time. You're doing the state legislation. You do skateboard ed, which we'll talk about next time. How do you keep it? How do you keep a clear brain and keep track of all this stuff? Well, I can go deep on the area that I that I uh, that I love and work on every day. I've got a surface knowledge about a whole host of other things that I love to uh, give my opinion on. Um, but you know, this is near and dear to me. Um, I don't know. There are a few things that are more important to me than how we create spaces for people that um, that uh, they can feel um, comfort. Um, that they can feel as home, that they can build community in. I don't know how we expect people to do much else in their life without that. So it's just, it's a, it's a passion project. Um, I'm cool. honored to have been able to do it for the last 16 years. So after watching the real success we've had town, we talk about Little River Crossing or, you know, the OQ Terrace or you mentioned West Rock. But when you also are up to two in the morning seeing the challenges and you're seeing Tent City, are you hopeful after all these years of working so hard in the trenches to have more affordable housing? Are you optimistic? What's your feeling now as you're watching this? I am. I've seen things transform um, in my lifetime, things that I didn't think would, would move. Um, and I've remained rooted in, in great faith. Um, and I think everything big that we've taken on has required some some dreamers, some believers, and some folks who wouldn't let go. So uh, absolutely. Are you, are you in categories one and two? I am. All right. I am. But not category three. <laughs> Karen DuBois Walton, it's always such a pleasure to chat with you. Always on Dateline New Haven. And thanks for coming in today. Thanks so much. And Always good, good to see you. And um, Harry Dros is behind the controls. Thank you so much for helping me try my best to fill in for the inimitable Babs Rolls Ivy all week and get some good interviews on the air. We're going to take it out on the Afro-Semitic Experience performing I Wish I Knew How It Feel to Be Free from the group CD, A Plea for Peace. This is Paul Bass inviting you to fly free with us all week long at WNHH. New Haven's home for community radio.